the question is, well, which one came first? Uh, did they all come first? You know, what's the time frame? From KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, it's season two of Untold Arizona. The podcast. I'm Tiara Vianne. Arizona is a unique place full of stories, folklore, and Wild West chicanery. KJZZ is celebrating Arizona with stories outside the usual news. For the final episode of this season, we're going way back with two stories about the ancient past of Arizona's land and its people. The Verde, the Gila, the Salt. Without these rivers, life in Arizona is unthinkable. But where did they come from? Nicholas Gerbis found out how scientists are still piecing together their mysterious origins. In medieval Europe, all roads led to Rome. In Arizona, all rivers lead to the Colorado. They provide the exodus of water across highlands to lowlands. And eventually, all of these rivers in the valley go to the Colorado River, and that goes to the Pacific Ocean. Brian Gautier of the Arizona Geological Survey is versed in reading landscapes and traces of ancient rivers. Erosion, like a rookie cop trampling a crime scene, has left few such clues undisturbed. But it also has washed its share of evidence into the Valley of the Sun. We know this much. We know that this place did collect thousands and thousands of feet, up to 12,000 feet of sand and gravel and silt and clay and mud and salt. After the thrusting, faulting, and tectonic taffy pulling that formed the basin and range, but before the Salt River arrived, the valley was a vast collection plate. ASU geologist Steve Reynolds. Originally, the area around Phoenix was just a closed basin. It didn't have any outlet to the sea. And so water that fell into the mountains just flowed into the middle of the basin and accumulated there. Then, around two to three million years ago, the big rivers appeared. The question is, well, which one came first? Uh, did they all come first? You know, what's the time frame? And we do know that not all of them came at the same time. Um, but as far as answering when they started to come, it's always been vague. At Papago Park, independent researcher Steve Scott Nicky explained how he uses drill cuttings from water wells to map the valley's hydrological history. During drilling projects, that's one of the few times where we can bring those materials back up to the surface to look at. They contain a wealth of information. Sorting these rocks by type and proportion yields a sediment fingerprint of the Salt River's earliest deposits. They arrived pretty suddenly because they're sitting on these closed basin deposits. And then all of a sudden, you have a river deposit. All three rivers appear to have originated in vast basins that filled up and eventually overflowed or burst. Water from higher in elevation spilled over low parts in mountain ranges, and the river would then start to cutting through those hard bedrock pieces, extending their reach down. The Salt River's birthplace is preserved today as Roosevelt Lake. We think the Salt River was Lake Roosevelt, and that spilled over across bedrock mountains into the next lowest place, which would have probably been the East Valley. It amazingly made it through the Superstition Mountains, cutting a gorge, uh, made its way south of Fountain Hills, out into the valley, probably originating near Granite Reef Dam. This high-energy torrent, loaded with cobbles and boulders, followed quite a different path than today. The ancestral Salt River flowed into the area of the Gila River Indian community, uh, Akchin Indian community. Those deposits are down there. 
What it flowed into, we don't know. We, we think that the Gila may have been present. Eventually, this track became untenable, and the salt swung west from the Papago Buttes, assumed its modern course, and began downcutting. So as you come out of the Salt River, and as you go either to the south or to the north, you rise up through these series of levels, each one of which is an old terrace deposited by the river. The Gila also once pursued a different path. Today, the river's headwaters lie in New Mexico, but its ancient source was likely Safford Basin, located in and around the San Carlos Indian Reservation. That system appears to have ended around three million years ago, and then we see the Gila River deposits in Florence abruptly arrive. White limestone still marks the birthplace of the Verde, a vast lake that once stretched from Chino Valley to Strawberry. So it probably filled up that bathtub of sediment and then spilled over into the Bartlett area, probably not for long, and then spilled over into the Fountain Hills area. Arizona's rivers are chronicled in the geology of its land and the history of its peoples, from the Verde's Sanagua cliff dwellings to the Salt's Hohokam canals and the Mogollon culture of the Gila headwaters. It's a saga we are still reading, and through our dams, diversions, and the depredations of climate change, rewriting. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Arizona has only been a state for just over 100 years, but people, of course, have been living in this region for thousands. This is evident in the tools they left behind for a variety of uses in the kitchen, for medicine, and even for art. Here's Tom Maxidon. When people think of Bisbee, Arizona, the mining industry is likely top of mind. This building was built in 1908. It was restored after a fire. So the original building was 1902, designed by an architect in El Paso. That's Diana Greege, one of the volunteers who keep the Bisbee Restoration Museum alive. And while a substantive amount of it is devoted to mining, it wasn't the precious mineral history preserved here that makes an impression. I first visited last December and recently returned to find out more about some ancient rocks on display called Matates. Is that how you pronounce it? Matates. These Matates, commonly referred to as groundstones by archaeologists, at first seem out of place compared to other artifacts. Dolls and clothing from the early 1900s, taxidermy of a two-headed calf, World War II memorabilia, mining implements, a copper diploma from Bisbee High School, an early personal computer, and familiar kitchens, cocinas from yesteryear. But before this was a record of history, its contents, including the matates, were in disarray. When I started here, these were scattered all over the building. They were stuck behind things, under things, and finally I found out what they were. The first time I saw similar-looking artifacts was while I lived in the Marianas on the Micronesian island of Guam in the western Pacific. And while the word matate is known by many on Guam because of Spanish colonization on island, the indigenous Chamorro culture use an Austronesian word, lusung. Domenica Tolentino is director of the Guam Museum. We began our conversation with a customary Chamorro greeting. Half a day, good morning. Half a day. Good morning. I started by asking her what the word lusong means. 
the term itself, it just means a grinding surface. But when we talk about Lusong on Guam, in reference to ancient Chamorro culture, it's usually in reference to the semi-portable large boulder. They vary in size, but the most common size that I've seen, at least among our collections, is uh, a circular rock surface of about a foot in diameter. And then the pounding area goes in about six inches or seven inches deep. Lusong are still used on Guam. Today, our traditional healers continue to use the lusung to prepare omelet or traditional herbal medicine. That's Victoria Lola Leon Guerrero, managing editor of the University of Guam Press. Speaking from NPR member station KPRG on Guam, Leon Guerrero says lusung maintains significant traditional weight today because of stories passed down over generations of Pacific Islanders living on Guam. In oral tradition, it's something that we've always been told is a sacred item, is an item to be respected. And it's one of those things that's just always sort of visually in your mind when you picture the tools that our ancestors used. Leon Guerrero says archaeologists have dated use of stone lusong and Chamorro culture back about 1,000 years, but there was likely a wooden precursor. Back in Bisbee at the Restoration Museum, Diana tells me how the ground stones on display there were utilized, depending upon the shape and characteristic indentations. The ones with the deepest holes were used for the hardest grains, and then the ones that are less indented were for corn and beans and things that were brittle. The metates in the museum have a variety of unverified dates of use and origin. And that makes volunteers like Diana cautious of her own intuition as a tool for discussion. When I first saw them, I was a water person myself, and I thought it was from water erosion, that they were underneath a trickle or a waterfall. And so it's off to Tucson to meet with one of the foremost ground stones experts in the state to explore more about the Cocinaliths of the Southwest. This part of the story begins in Tucson, where I met Jenny Adams at Desert Archaeology, a woman-owned company. Adams is a research archaeologist and an expert on ground stones. And when we call these ground stones, just, you know, for layman's terms, is that simply because these were things that were placed on the ground and you don't find them in a, like a mountainous region or something? What's the, oh, what's no, the terminology? Oh, no, that's exactly. When I first started uh-huh. school, I thought, well, they're all ground stone. Look, they're all found right. on the ground. But no, it has to do more with the way things are shaped by grinding or that they were used to grind things. But it's really a construct by archaeologists, if you say groundstone to another archaeologist, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. A person who's never seen these, but maybe has used a mortar and pestle in their mm-hmm. kitchen, a small version mm-hmm. of a groundstone, would that be fair? That's very fair. Mortars and pestles go all the way back into several thousand years B.C. And some chefs will tell you that the best way to do your spices is to grind them up in those stone mortar and pestle. And that familiar word is tossed out in our conversation, surrounded by stones of all types and microscopes to examine their deeper context. The other terms for tools used to work food are manos and matates. Mano is the Spanish word for hand. Matates is a different origin word. It comes from the Aztec. Adams says she's skeptical of the older dates displayed in pictures of the Bisbee Restoration Museum groundstones. Admittedly, Photos alone put her at the disadvantage of not being able to sample them herself. 
So how does one date the use of a ground stone that may be millions of years old? The answer would take me back to the valley. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again I caught up with Craig Fertilness. He's senior archaeologist with Logan Simpson, an environmental consulting and cultural resources firm in Tempe. Fertilmas says his work with the Gila River Indian community helped him identify the geochemistry of many groundstones in the Phoenix Basin. We can analyze it with a technique called X-ray fluorescence spectrometry, uh, which produces a geochemical signature. And from that, we can compare it to the reference database and uh, reconstruct where groundstone from a prehistoric context derives. And what you find is that social relationships among villages are pretty complex, and people were acquiring stone from multiple resource locales. Leora Newman and her family have been part of the Gila River Indian community for many generations. We discuss matates and the fondness of older ways. What I remember is that my aunt would grind corn and uh, wheat on those, and also she would make chili stew with the chili pots that she would grind. I was just a little girl then. Newman says the matate her ancestor used was outside the kitchen window and approximately 15 by 12 inches. I was curious what other characteristics she could remember, such as striations or indentations. Yeah, an indentation in the middle part from them using it all the time. Newman's daughter, Linda Morgan, also remembers stories of groundstones. My grandfather also used to talk about the mottos and matates because we had some in our yard, like three of them, I think, in our possession at our house. We always kept them outside because that's just kind of where they belong. My mom didn't use it to prepare food. I didn't use it to prepare food. So that tradition for our family ended in the late 40s. And while such large groundstones may not be practical in the modern era of densely packed cities, smaller matate and mono-inspired mortars and pestles abound in home and restaurant cocinas. For Diana Greege at the Bisbee Restoration Museum, using such tools makes a better sauce. When you think about mole, there's nothing like a fresh mole sauce compared to a jar. And while some stories, like verifying the dates of use for the groundstones in the museum, might go unanswered, it's not for a lack of telling their story. I'm Tom Maxidon, KJZZ News, Phoenix. You can see photos of groundstones and learn more about them from an archaeologist at untold.kjzz.org. And with that, this season, as they say, is history. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of Untold Arizona. This episode was produced by me. I'm Tiara Fayan. The stories were edited by Al Macias, Michelle Marisco, Chad Snow, and Carrie Fair Snyder. Our digital editor is Sky Shout. There are lots of pictures, videos, maps, and more at untold.kjzz.org. Do you have an untold Arizona story of your own? You can drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Use the hashtag untoldarizona. And check out our Facebook group where you can connect to more people who love a good Arizona tale as much as you do. If you haven't heard Season 1 or our other podcasts, check out podcast.kjzz.org. Find us on iTunes or search for KJZZ wherever you get your podcasts. 
And however you're listening to this podcast, be sure to give us a rating. It helps other people find our content. If you liked this episode, help KJZZ tell even more great stories. Head over to donate.kjzz.org to make your gift of support. This is a KJZZ production. I'm Tiara Vianne, and thanks for listening.